Uh, well, good morning and good afternoon. Uh, nirvana is a word. In Sanskrit, it means extinction or extinguishing, disappearing. And uh, the emphasis of what that's referring to sort of varies a little bit across time, across cultures, within communities and traditions. Sometimes the emphasis is on uh, extinguishing sort of cravings and extinguishing aversion, our, our mental and physical habits. And sometimes the emphasis is on extinguishing the sense of a separate self. And with that automatically is paired the sense of there being an other separate to ourselves. And um, the reason this whole idea, this word nirvana, exists in this idea of extinguishing um, is to help us find uh, uh, an inner peace, a, a, a sense of accord with the world, uh, to be experience um, or know reality and therefore to, to have the capacity to be beneficial to others. Although it is a pleasant experience for ourselves to be at peace and uh, not to be caught in a pattern of craving for things, pushing things away, including our own thoughts, as well as people and events. Uh, that that's sort of like a side benefit. That's uh, just a side benefit. It's really that it, it frees us up to experience the here and now and respond to the cries of the world. So that's my reason for wanting to discuss Nirvana today. That's the reason to have this whole conversation. is so that we will have uh, an inner kind of calm so that we can be attentive to the experiences of our senses and respond to the cries of the world. Uh, but uh, my talking about it or, or reading about it really is only a pointer anything that comes through a conversation like this about nirvana or any other buddhist teachings we need to take that onto the cushion and sit with it ourselves until we know it know it ourselves on the cushion and off the cushion in our zazen of just ordinary life of daily life Uh, in the very early um, Buddhist writings in the Pali texts, Nirvana was 
uh, often associated with um, extinguishing the cycle of rebirth, of rebirth. The idea that we have to learn this lesson of not being dependent on conditioned phenomena for our security, that that pattern of trying to um, get security through the, the experiences that are transient and ultimately insecure just leads to a cycle of suffering for ourselves and that we create for others. And so we, we have to keep coming back to learn, keep coming back life after life to learn uh, how to do something different to that. And part of, part of that rebirth is um, the sense of the karmic effects from our volitional actions that stem from our sense of being a separate being and others being outside of us. But the karmic effects of those volitional actions stemming from that perspective cause suffering and keep us in the cycle of rebirths. So we can think about it that way, or we can think about it simply as in the cycle of our daily life. I'm sure all of us have experienced ourselves and seen it in others, a repeating pattern of thinking or behavior that just results in the same <laughs> repetition of pain, the same thought patterns that if you look at them closely, have their foundation in the sense of, of a separate self and an, and an other. So even if, even if you don't feel uh, comfortable with the idea of sort of cycles of rebirth, it still is very instruct instructive to think about it simply in cycles of our own thinking day by day, year by year, decade by decade. I think most of you have seen this fabric that I wrap my books in. It's just a, a little reminder that these are sacred texts from our wise ancestors who have who dedicated their lives to sharing the Dharma with us. So we wrap the books up that way. It's very nice. My teacher Kokio gave me that envelope for my, my books. Uh, so a very well-known book, I've read from it many times before, What the Buddha Talk, Taught, by Rahula. I thought I would just read out some of the early Pali canon texts on descriptions of Nirvana. So this is like, they're kind of a bit rep repetitive, but they're just taking snippets out of some of the early texts. Let us consider a few definitions and descriptions of nirvana as found in the original Pali text. It is the complete cessation of thirst, giving it up, renouncing it, emancipation from it, detachment from it. 
and this is another description, calming of all conditioned things, giving up of all defilements, extinction of, extinction of thirst, detachment, cessation, this is Nibbāna. O bhikkhus, what is the absolute, unconditioned? It is, O bhikkhus, the extinction of desire, the extinction of hatred, the extinction of illusion. This, O bhikkhus, is called the absolute. O Radha, the extinction of thirst is nirvana. O bhikkhus, whatever there may be, conditioned or unconditioned, among them detachment is the highest. I think that this, for many of us, sounds um, sounds a little unhappy, or <laughs> sounds a little harsh. Uh, but we can relax. We can relax with it and uh, consider how this, you know, terms like um, that detachment is the highest. How can that be a joyful kind of a detachment? Is it possible to have a joyful detachment? I tend to, to use the word, as do many other people, sort of non-attachment rather than detachment. I find non-attachment is less likely to lead to a troublesome, not caring kind of um, association. So reading this, what comes up for me is um, the beauty of simplicity. In, in the Zen tradition, we tend to cultivate sort of simple lives, paring away of unnecessary uh, things that have often an association with desire. So not in an austere kind of way, but just uh, live simply so all may simply live kind of a way. Not needing so much to have entertainment not needing so much to have a great variety of foods or great variety of clothing. It's not that there's anything wrong with those things as such, but there is a sort of beauty in simplicity. It, it tends to help us have less attachment to live more simply. And with that too often goes less aversion because Aversion is often associated with, um, you know, sort of pushing things away. It's like the other side of pulling things in. When you, you have a habit of pulling things in, you tend to have a habit of pushing things away as well. So as we cultivate a habit of simplicity, which is less pulling in, it, it seems to have a symmetry with a less need to push away. So when things go wrong, we don't jump so quickly to feeling aversion. A nirvana also is sometimes thought of as a place, like entering nirvana. It's a, a, a phrase that we use a lot. And sometimes I think people think of that as it's a place somewhere else at some other time. Uh, but particularly in the Mahayana tradition, which I'm going to speak about in, in a moment, we, we tend to think of nirvana as being here and now 
and just the other day I was thinking about the word portal and how the word portal or the, the idea of portals you know come up in fantasy writings and in science fiction um, and those portals usually are to somewhere else another time in the future or the past a, a different planet or something like that but we could think of our zazen as offering us this portal into the here and now it's like our, our eyes and our ears have a habit of, of sort of thinking around the here and now, so like missing it a little bit. So if it's right in front of us, but we kind of look around it, we're sort of looking into the past a bit or the future a bit or over there a bit. So it could be a portal just into now. So Nirvana's not a portal into somewhere else. <laughs> it's just right here now. So uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, Nirvana started to shift. It's how we, how we thought about it. It started to shift, uh, and that's attributed to the evolution of the Bodhisattva ideal, which is to uh, not be moving towards a personal, liber personal liberation or moving out of the cycle of rebirths, but staying firmly in the world life after life until all beings are freed from suffering and then all of us entering nirvana together it's a, it's a different it's a different way of seeing it and it's it's entering the here and now together as one unified uh, as a oneness together as one And um, I have a dictionary here called the Concise Dictionary of Buddhism and Zen. And there's just a paragraph about, about this point. In Mahayana, because of emphasis on the Bodhisattva ideal, attainment of, of Nirvana slips somewhat into the background it loses, however, none of its importance, since in no school of the Mahayana is bodhisattvahood considered the ultimate goal. Extinction in Nirvana is only postponed by the bodhisattva until all beings are liberated from suffering. Here Nirvana takes on a positive character, since it becomes essentially a, a state of awareness of one's identity with the Absolute. So I, I like this, and this is definitely my kind of uh, emphasis, that by identifying with the absolute, identifying with everything, that is, that is the experience of nirvana. Awareness of one's identity with the absolute. The experience of unity with the absolute is not limited to the person of the experience. Rather, it is a limitless experience that encompasses all appearances, including one's own body. In this view, there is no essential distinction between samsara and nirvana. And I'll say a little bit about samsara in a few minutes. 
and uh, bliss is another word that people often associate with nirvana. And again, it can be a, a misunderstood term where people think of bliss as being kind of floating a little bit above the ground with a, a sort of a smile on the face and not having a care in the world. Um, but here I've got a definition, bliss is cognizing one's identity with the absolute. And that, that in many ways, you can see that it's actually a very grounded definition of bliss, cognizing one's identity with the absolute. So it's not getting away from ordinary life, it's not floating above ordinary life. It's seeing oneself as ordinary life. And there's just a short um, few sentences I like here in, in uh, what the Buddha taught. Because nirvana is often expressed in negative terms, there are many who have got a wrong notion that it is negative and expresses self-annihilation. Nirvana is definitely not annihilation of the self because there is no self to annihilate. It's very important <laughs> to remember that. There is no self to annihilate. If at all, it is the annihilation of the illusion of the false idea of self. Smiley face in the margin. So uh, our task is to en engage with and not escape ordinary life while not forgetting the emptiness of all our experiences. And, and this, is, this is a bit challenging. The experiences coming in through our senses are extremely convincing. But our practice, our practice tells us, and the teachings tell us, that all these experiences coming in through our senses, including the thoughts that we have in our mind, are not accurate descriptions or they're not accurate uh, portrayals of reality. Re reality cannot, cannot be understood. In, in, uh, it can't be understood through our cognitions, through our sense portals. It can't be understood through our sense portals that way. But that's our task, to engage with the world, not to want to escape from it, and to not forget that it is not as it appears. When I was living at Santa Cruz Zen Centre, I made a wooden sign, which kind of amused me that I made this wooden sign about signlessness, but nevertheless, I made this wooden sign that said, Nirvana is samsara without imputations. And it was at my front door. So every time I came, came up to my front door, 
and took off my shoes, there, there was this wooden sign. Nirvana is samsara without imputations. Imputations being all our ideas and thoughts and labels that we place on things. And of course we do do that, but the, the skill, the, the wisdom is in not believing them. They are temporary, beneficial um, imputations that allow us to maneuver ourselves within the world, the world of phenomena. But that's all they are. They're just temporary um, place markers for something that we can't understand. So samsara, the word samsara in Sanskrit uh, means is, is a flowing around or cyclic. And you can see how that, that word, uh, how a word, a Sanskrit word that means flowing around or cyclic is, is a pretty good word to choose for, for suffering or for dilute, delusion or deluded thoughts about self and other keeps us trapped trapped in a cycle of trying to get ground when there isn't a, there isn't ground to be found in the conditioned world So the other side of that sign, which I didn't make, but you could have a reverse, which is that samsara is nirvana with imputations, you know, which is just so sad that so much of the time people are suffering here in nirvana. We're here in nirvana and we're suffering because of our imputations. And as, the, as sort of aspiring bodhisattvas, we, we want to help in whatever skillful ways we can to point out that that is what is going on, that we are here in nirvana, causing an experience of samsara by our imputations. Um, this is another book I have here, The Record of Transmitting of Light by Keizan, one of our most important ancestors in Japan, two generations after Dogen. It was Keizan that, like, Dogen established Zen in Japan and Keizan was able to really create a blossoming. He, uh, built many monasteries and really helped Zen to expand in Japan. And um, this translation, this is the, the Denko Roku, and the translation is by Francis Cook. And I, it's not that often that I really enjoy reading introductions, but I love Francis Cook's introduction in this book. So this, what I'm going to read is uh, a kind of a different way, another way of seeing nirvana. 
Western philosophers in modern times have concluded that we can never know events as they truly are apart from our interpretation of them because we can never transcend those factors that condition our experience of events. We are necessarily and forever locked within our minds and our minds are conditioned. So this, this first part is, is a good description of imputations. On the other hand, Buddhism has claimed for over 2,000 years that a pure, unconditioned way of knowing is indeed possible and we can know events just as they are, undistorted by culture or personality. This claim, in fact, is the tacit assumption at the bottom of Kazan's text. Kazan, like all his predecessors, believed without question that this way of knowing is innate in all of us and that although it has been obscured by various conditioning factors, it can be uncovered and found. This assumption is, in fact, the sole rationale for Zen practice. And the other, the other morning, when we were doing Zazen together, I could hear the birds. It's spring, nearly spring, here in Australia, and the birds are, um, are, are communicating a lot. I don't know what they're communicating about, but they're, they're very enthusiastic. Pre-dawn, you know, the sky is still grey, and there's a sort of pink, pink on the horizon, and the birds are, are really uh, very enthusiastic, it seems. And other people who were sitting that morning were hearing birds as well. Some were also in Canberra, so probably hearing the same, same general sounds as I was hearing. And others were in Brisbane or Melbourne or in uh, Pennsylvania, which may have been quieter because it would have been late afternoon. And I, I had the thought that, that that particular hearing of the birds was um, quite possibly identical with other people's hearing of birds in the quality of people from thousands of years ago. that there is a kind of knowing that we have that's undifferentiated where we forget ourselves and we forget the other and we have just a pure experience, a completely pure experience. And this is what was referred to there uh, by Kazan in this introduction that I just read, that there is something, there is a way in which we can experience that does, uh, that is not affected by culture or personality or any of those things. And that was, is another way to think about nirvana, is when we have that kind of knowing, an intimacy, an intimacy where we as a self collapse in the equation and the other collapses in the equation. And it's just a very simple, it's extremely ordinary. Uh, so I just wanted to, before finishing, 
talk a little about some practical ways in which um, thinking about nirvana can maybe be helpful just in our everyday life. And um, our practice, although in some ways is very simple, it's just sitting, it also um, can be quite challenging and ask quite a lot of us. The teachings are asking us to give up some very deeply ingrained habits. So one way you can work with this idea of nirvana, that we are in nirvana right now and it only feels samsaric because of our mind, is when we have a negative thought, say we're annoyed with somebody, we're annoyed with ourselves, disappointed in ourselves or disappointed in somebody, and so we can feel that our energy, the state of mind that we're in is sort of unpleasant and is strengthening our ego identification or the emphasis might be on them, that when that is happening, we can take full responsibility for it and say to ourselves, I am creating this samsaric experience. I am creating it in my mind. I am responsible for undoing it. And, and this, this movement is not about saying who is doing the right or wrong thing out there in the world of phenomena. It's about what, you, what we're doing in our mind, how we're viewing things, what the imputations are in our mind. And if we can really trust, which only happens through Zazen, well, maybe that's too strong a word to say only, but can be, this trust can be cultivated in Zazen. If we can trust that this is Nirvana, and the only reason we're not experiencing it that way is because of our mental imputations and our belief in them, we can be very motivated to gently but kindly be with whatever thoughts we're having and see if we can see, you could say, see the mistaken views in our thoughts. And sometimes it might take a few minutes or sometimes it might take a few hours. And if we've got some very deep-rooted patterns, it may take months or years to undo them. But nobody said this practice was easy. <laughs> it's easy and it's also difficult. And I think it really cultivates a sense of maturity and responsibility, that we take full responsibility. I found this very much to be so. I take full responsibility when I find myself starting to slide into some kind of negative thinking. Catch it as quickly as I can. Take full responsibility. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't blame it on externalities. It's very disempowering to put everything onto externalities. So that's, that's, I guess, a sobering challenge <laughs> to all of us to really trust that this is nirvana and it's up to us if we want to experience it. I want to finish with 
a quote from, again, from what the Buddha taught. It is incorrect to think that nirvana is the natural result of the extinction of craving. Nirvana is not the result of anything. If it would be a result, then it would be an effect produced by a cause. It would be produced and conditioned. Nirvana is neither cause nor effect. It is beyond cause and effect. Truth is not a result of an effect. It is not produced like a mystic spiritual mental state. Truth is. Nirvana is. The only thing you can do is see it, to realize it. There is a path leading to the realization of Nirvana, but Nirvana is not the result of the path. You may get to the mountain along a path, but the mountain is not the result nor the effect of the path. You may see a light, but the light is not the result of your eyesight. This is to, to help us uh, help us with this word nirvana to not load it up with a bunch of different things. It's just now. It's just here. And we can't know it. But we can experience it. And uh, I would recommend that we decide to love it. Uh, okay.